this is totally a get drunk with your friends and watch kind of movie. Although I was enjoying it sober and alone, which is also the name of my uh, autobiography. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster from St. Diego, California. And you are Cassidy Robinson. You are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains, and it sounded like you were going to say more things just then. I was, and then I remember you get mad at me when I do that, so I decided not to. On this episode, we are going to be talking about... Firestarter, the uh, Stephen King adaptation slash remake that is available to watch on Peacock. It is also in theaters. And for the streaming homework you assigned me, Ghosts of Mars. What what service did we use to watch that? Uh, I watched it on Hulu. Okay, Hulu. That is what I used as well. And we're going to get in some other stuff too, but before we do that... You're doing improv again, and you had a a show recently, didn't you? Yeah, so I have gotten involved with Mockingbird Improv. Um, The improv theater that I was was working out of back in like 2018, 2017, in a little bit of 2019, they found a new space in in an area called Liberty Station here, and they're building a, a cool new little theater. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're kind of relaunching, you know, a, a phoenix rising from the ashes of Old Town Improv. And I just, I felt like, you know, they had auditions and I was like, well, this is a, a good time to get sort of re-involved without having it be like weird. Uh, so now I am doing a show that I, I did, I was a part of a long time ago, uh, called Improv Versus Stand-Up. And so they'll have uh, three stand-up comedians come, and and they'll do a set, and then we do improv based off of their stand-up material. Right, yeah. So you essentially use their stand-up as like a uh, a prompt or a uh, a monologue to go off of? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's um, instead of getting an audience initiation, all of our material is just based off of uh, all the jokes we just heard. Is it weird playing with another with another group of people? I mean, you said you kind of know them or you you had uh, played with them before, but you were with the Comedy Project in, in Pocatello, Idaho for so long that yeah. it was almost kind of a second hand or second nature to do scenes with them because you knew each other so well. Is it kind of well, awkward it's... to like jump into the mix of, and get used to like everybody's individual comedic styles yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a little weird because a lot of improv, you know, is based off of trust and trusting your partner and and uh, things like that. And you know, it's it's a little weird when it's complete strangers. Um, I do think, you know, I kind of pride myself in that. I feel like I am very good at playing with all levels of improvisers um 
I I feel like that is a particular skill I have in improv. So it it wasn't really a huge concern, and a few of them I had worked with before and played with before, so it wasn't totally weird. But this is the first time I've done a a show that hasn't had any like former comedy project members in it, at least that I can think of. Do you ever get into a situation where you start a scene or you enter a scene that's already established where you think they're on one wavelength or like they're headed towards like they're making one reference, but you're like completely off from like what they're setting up? Uh, I mean, yeah, that that's just sort of the nature of improv. Um, <laughs> uh, happens all the time. I think it honestly happens probably less in this show because we're all listening to the same stand-up and we're all kind of trying to distill the comedic premise. Um, so it's, you know, it's pretty recognizable when somebody comes out, you know, when it's like, somebody does a joke about masturbation and then somebody does a masturbation scene. Like it's pretty easy to, uh, to know like where they're coming from. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's just sort of the nature of improv is like happens all the time when you just don't know what the other person was going for. And you know, yeah, gotta go with it and right. I mean, figure it out. That happens on this podcast sometimes when I'm like, setting up a bit and then you're just like i don't know what you're saying right now (laughs) and i'm like never mind i'll just cut all of this but i unlike improv have the benefit of editing (laughs) yes that's true um yeah i mean honestly if you can have a conversation with a person you can conceivably do improv Eh, i I don't know i think it's a I mean, there's there's a few more more to it than that. And there's certain comfortability factors, but the basic skill is the same. You're contributing to, you know, this thing that you're this moment in time that you're sharing together. That's all it is. Yeah. I mean, it's it's what you're saying, plus being comfortable on stage and and, um, confident and like knowing what you're doing with your body and things like that as well. The other thing I wanted to get to before we jump into the reviews, a few weeks ago, I attempted to have a guest uh, to come in and record an episode while you were away, and the episode ended up kind of getting lost in editing, but I wrote up this quiz for the guest that I feel should go used. Okay. Now... The premise of the quiz was this person was from Seattle, so this is a Seattle-based movie quiz. Okay. Um, but I feel like you've probably seen all of these movies, or if not, at least have enough like cultural context to, to put these together. And then after you answer these, I'll let you know how you did against her. Keep in mind, she'd only been living there for like three months, so... This right. should be beginner level Seattle movie quiz. If you remember when we had Patrick on, I did something like this about Detroit movies. So yeah. uh, the way this goes is I, I'll, I'll give you the premise of the film, and then you just tell me which movie it is. Okay? okay. All right. So the first one here. A young journalist sleuths around the moors of the Pacific Northwest to uncover the mysterious murder of a young girl. 
Oh god, I don't know. Uh, and they're all movies. They're not like TV shows because these are all like Twin Peaks. It, it does sound like Twin Peaks, but it's not. You could have said Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, and you would have been wrong. No, uh, these are all movies, and I let my other guests know. Uh, none of these are particularly old. I think the oldest one here is like mid eighties, but okay. Uh, so a, a guy goes looking for a murdered girl. A young journalist sleuths around the moors of the Pacific Northwest to uncover the mysterious murder of a young girl. A young journalist. Oh, God. I don't know, but I feel like I've seen it. Uh, uh, oh, uh, I'm going to say, this is total guess, uh, A Place Beyond the Pines. As a hint, do you want the year? Sure. Or is that your final answer? Uh... Sure, I'll take the year. I'll take the year. 2002. And I am burying the lead in this description. Clearly. Um, God, I don't know. Okay. The answer is The Ring. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> I didn't realize that was in Seattle. Okay. Yeah, the city stuff takes place in Seattle. She, you know, she kind of goes around. That's why I said... The moors of the Pacific Northwest, because I don't know exactly how far she leaves the city, but... Um, uh, this is going to be challenging. I realize now that I get Seattle and San Francisco mixed up a lot. But, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Um, I would think more like... I mean, San Francisco is California, Seattle, so... Right. I, I, I understand mixing up Seattle and Portland, but I think San Francisco is pretty, pretty its own thing. But okay. Uh, they do get easier because I, I got progressively lazier with these questions. Okay. Here's the next one. A friendship is put to the test when a group of curious teens develop superpowers after discovering the broken remains of a UFO. Oh, this is, um, Chronicle, right? Correct. Okay. All right. No, I haven't he seen it, but. Uh, heavily features the Space Needle in the climax. Okay, third one here. A pair of hetero buds decide to make an adult film as part of an art project about subverting masculinity. Oh, this is... Uh, um, I haven't seen this one, but I'm pretty sure... Is this... Uh, oh, God, what's the name of it? it has, it's like two guys' uh, names, right? Um, it's not Chuck and Larry. Um, <laughs> But Do it's you, something like that, right? Is it is it Chuck and Buck? Uh, no. And you have seen that movie, I'm pretty sure. Um, I can give you a year, if you like. That doesn't help me. It's all fog. Anything be before 2015 is fog for me. <laughs> Do you want me to read the description again? Two hetero buds make a porno. To challenge ideas of masculinity, right? Basically, yeah. I um, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, this is the film Hump Day, starring Mark Duplass and Joshua Damn it, that's Leonard. The name of it. Yes, and it was uh, directed by Lynn Shelton, uh, who for a little while was dating Mark Maron until she recently passed away. Um, she, uh, she had also directed a lot of episodes of Glow. I think that's how they met. Jeez. Oh. Okay, 
This movie chronicles the love lives and aspirations of a group of Seattle Bohemians, musicians, and young professionals. Oh, is this, uh, is this either singles or reality bites? I'm going to say singles. You are correct. Okay. I mean, that's basically the plot of any, like, post-clerks indie movie. Yeah, and some pre-clerks indie movies 90s. as well. Yeah. Um, and this is like th- the Seattle movie. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of Sleepless in Seattle, which I did not use in any of these. You should know. Okay. Okay. Two teenage sisters disagree about the importance of high school dating culture. Oh, is this um, uh, 10 Things I Hate About You? Yes, it is. I thought that was in California. That's in Seattle. Uh, yeah, you can see like the skyline um, in the in the first huh. shot of the movie. It's like the suburbs of Seattle. It might be, you know, um, one of those other oh, like, surrounding sure. towns. But yeah. All right. If you don't get this one, I'd be very surprised. A family meets a friendly Sasquatch on a camping trip. And decide to take him home and hide him from normal civilization. Uh, Harry and the Hendersons. Yes. (laughs) I also didn't realize that took place in Seattle, but that makes sense. Yeah, you don't really... I mean, a lot of these movies just try and use the city as, like, anywhere USA. I mean, with the exception of a couple here, but... Okay, last one here. A professional photographer becomes the target of the misguided obsessions of his landlord's 14-year-old daughter. Uh, Lolita? No. But you're on the right path. Do you want a year? Sure, that might help this one. 1993. Professional photographer becomes the obsession of his landlord's 14-year-old daughter. 1993. Is this um, is this one of those like '90s seductive movies? Is this like uh, Poison Ivy? Again, sort of on the right path, but not the right movie. I think Poison Ivy was '91 or two. This was kind of a Poison Ivy uh, ripoff, of which there were many. Yeah, what's the other one? Um, so this is the one with Reese Witherspoon, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, this is The Crush, starring Alicia Silverstone and Carrie Elwes. Ah, this... Okay. Wait, was Alicia Silverstone in... Who was in Poison Ivy? Uh, that was Drew Barrymore. Uh, I was thinking Alicia Silverstone at first, but when you said it wasn't Poison Ivy, that threw me... Cause I was thinking the crush was Poison Ivy. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. And she was also in a movie called The Babysitter, which was like the same movie. These are like her like yeah, there pre-clueless was, there was years. A, well, just in general, the 90s were a, a, a big time for like seductive thrillers that are pretty inappropriate. <laughs> yes. Um, this, was, this was brought up the first time. That I did this quiz too, and uh, she made the observation that there was a what was the um, Joey Buttafuoco case? Oh, um. I forget the name of the girl involved with that, but that that was that that set off this 
little mini trend of Lolita thrillers in the 90s. Uh, that makes sense. Amy Fisher. Yes. And just so you know, it was the exact same score, and it was the exact same movies as well. The Ring and Hump Day that you missed. <laughs> <laughs> Which, granted, granted, The Ring is um most tricky worded of all of these, and sure, uh, yeah. Hump Day is a pretty obscure movie. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was like a little mumblecore thing that most people didn't see. Uh, I know that my wife saw it. My wife, Ashley, she saw it because I remember her telling me about it. I knew the movie because they, they like screened it at her school or something. Yeah, I, I think I rented it when it was new. Um, I'd already like was into the Duplass brothers and, and like the mumblecore thing. Um, so I was checking out a lot of those movies around the same time. But speaking of Drew Barrymore, uh, when we were talking about Poison Ivy, uh, let's go ahead and move into the remake of Firestarter, um, Drew Barrymore, starring in the original from 1984. Uh, Did you want to describe the premise? Firestarter is about a young girl who has these psychic abilities um she's able to cause fires with her mind um but she doesn't know how to control it and so of course she's danger to herself and everyone around her her parents also have various psychic abilities that they think that they got through like a random drug trial in college um which they seem to have passed down to their daughter and because of that, they're on the run because they know that if anyone found out about their abilities, uh, specifically her abilities, they would want to capture her and study her. She has an incident in school one day, which puts her on the radar of this mysterious government agency uh, that calls in another psychic soldier, a uh, Native American by the name of Rainbird. To go and track them down and bring them back to custody. And then shit happens and they have to hit the road. Yep. In the lead, we have Ryan Kira Armstrong as Charlie McGee, the young daughter, uh, who was originally played by Drew Barrymore in the 80s version. And Zac Efron playing her father, Andy McGee, Cindy Lemon as her mother, Vicky. And as the the head of this evil organization known as The Shop, uh, we have Gloria Rubin as Captain Hollister, and just above her, uh, Kurtwood Smith, or some people might remember as the villain from Robocop or the dad from that 70s show. He shows up in one scene. Yeah, and uh, uh, Rainbird is played by uh, Michael Gray Eyes. So... Is this your first encounter with this story? I mean, yeah, I, I never we'll talk saw about how original, and I, I haven't read the book, so the, I I knew nothing about Firestarter except it was about a psychic girl who starts fires. Right. Okay. So I wasn't sure if this is one you had read 
or if you'd seen the original movie or parts of it or something on TV. No, I get to judge this movie on its own merits or the lack thereof. Okay. So it, it's, uh, it's interesting because this movie or this novel was released in that like hot streak period of Stephen King. You know, that kind of mm. starts with Carrie and Salem's Lot into, you know, the, his bigger epics in the uh, mid to late 80s. Um, and it's, I think it hangs out right in there around like before or after like Cujo and The Dead Zone. So he's already kind of writing different types of stories that are deal with the paranormal, but maybe more in kind of like a sci-fi-ish way, as opposed to something like The Shining, totally a haunted house horror kind of experience. In a way, it kind of takes ideas that he started with Carrie, um, Mm -hmm. and then just uh, develops them a little bit more into a fully-fledged sort of like sci-fi premise. Well, um, it's it's interesting, right? Because I think a big part of why Carrie as a story works mm-hmm. is because of the way it's you know tied to this uh, this girl and going through puberty and becoming a woman and and you know the 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 violent emotions that can can go along with that, especially in high school when you're being bullied. Like it, the supernatural elements work very well. As, you know, both as a metaphor and as actual story juice. In this, again, I I haven't read the book, but at least in this movie, it's just, it kind of feels like, yeah, but what if psychics are cool? Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost kind of like post-X-Men, in a way. Uh, Yeah, I think this, because when did the book come out? Because I think this would have been post-Phoenix Saga, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it it does have, like you said, it is a bit more uh, sci-fi than, than horror. I mean, it, it certainly has some horror elements, but... Yeah, um, and, you know, King has always ha- mixed all of the above fantasy, horror, sci-fi, and thriller stuff. Mm-hmm. And he just, you know, depending on what he's working on, he can kind of crank up one dial over another. Um, sure, yeah. And the original publishing date was 1980 for... Oh, yeah, so this would have been way after the Phoenix Saga and, and stuff like that with, with X-Men and... Yeah, um, but you can definitely see the parallels there, and I don't know if King was super plugged into, like, Marvel and uh, and comics and, and that kind of stuff, or if it was just sort of parallel thinking. Also... Yeah, yeah, I'm, this I'm is, not... Saying he was like ripping it off or anything, but um, no, but it has a I similar. Kind of it's a similar premise, has a similar sort of appeal. I mean, there, nobody's wearing spandex, but that's about as, you know, <laughs> it, it, we're it's only about that far removed. Um, mm-hmm. but it's also obviously kind of making reference to different conspiracy theories and stuff that are floating around at the time, like MK Ultra. Well, yeah, particularly MK Ultra when. And I, I, I mean, not all of MK Ultra's conspiracy theory, like you know, the stuff about them developing acid and giving it to college students—that is a real thing. Like that's a documented fact. No, yeah, I mean, I, I'm you know, conspiracy doesn't denote 
uh, truth or a lie. It's just that it would, these were things that were kind of being written about or talked about. And, uh, some things were, were, yeah, some things were being covered up. Some things weren't. Things have been uncovered since then. And I remember watching like old documentary footage of, you know, and who knows if it was, Real or not, probably not, knowing how propaganda works, but of, uh, of counterintelligence from Russia, like during like the sixties, trying to, uh, study psychics or telekinetics. And there's like this like old woman, she's like staring at a frog and it's hopping on the table and then the frog, it dies. And you know, there was just, there was a lot of this weird shit kind of like. <laughs> being discussed around this time. And and you can definitely see like that sort of influence this story. Um, and I think interestingly, maybe more interesting than the actual end result of any of the movies, this seemed to be the, the groundwork for season one of stranger things. Yeah. I mean, I mean for stranger sure, things like, taps into uh, a bunch of uh, other King and, King and uh, Spielberg stuff, but I—I I mean, the whole story of what's her name, Eleven. Eleven, yeah. The, the she's a girl with psychic powers, and Who's, you know, yeah, uh, she can use them to fight monsters, and and she's totally. being chased uh, by I mean, a shadow organization who wants to study her. Yeah, I, uh, she isn't technically a pyromancer the way uh, this girl is, but but totally like you. Stranger Things does not hide its uh, influences at all, mm. um, but it, it's obviously alluding to this and to Carrie specifically. Oh yeah, and I—I th- I mean, even stuff with like the upside down and and that kind of stuff kind of gets into other King and kind of stuff. Even like there's elements of it and and a lot of things that weave its way into into. Uh, Stranger Things, but that first seat, like the spine of the of the through line of season one, is is really Firestarter retooled. Sure, yeah. Um, uh, and then later yeah. we would see King even kind of rip himself off, which he's been known to do um, with <laughs> both Doctor Sleep, fairly similar, and or elements of Doctor Sleep, I should say. And uh, well, a, a book that I think came out fairly recently called The Institute, which was so similar that fans almost regard it as a semi-sequel, even though they don't call it The the Shop or anything, and they don't mention any of the characters from Firestarter, but it's almost the same thing. I mean, yes, Stephen King does that all the time, and I think that's why, I mean, I think that's one reason why I gravitate towards Stephen King is, you know, he was kind of doing this, you know, big multiversal thing in his literature. Um, the way that, uh, you know, a lot of horror writers, the you know, in the early 20th century were doing like, um, everybody talks about, uh, HP Lovecraft, but he wasn't the only, author doing this kind of like you know this like cosmic horror stuff and they would all of these writers would like i mean they were all ripping off poe um but they would all like create creatures that would like 
interchange in each other's worlds and stuff and and um so he's he was kind of doing that just by himself right i mean i think towards the mid 80s or so there's almost another little community like that with him clive barker and um uh what's his name neil gaiman yeah uh i mean you could even throw dean Koontz in there even though you know, a lot of people don't regard him as highly as, like, Stephen King. But, yeah, there was, like, kind of this horror community building up in literature again during that time. And, and yeah, they all referenced each other. And and um, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So, what did you think of the movie? Uh, I thought this movie was terrible. <laughs> um, this is just a bad movie. Uh, it's not shot particularly well. Um, it kind of has the vibes of this. Kind of feels like it was uh, made for TV, like t- um, like a Lifetime original kind of thing. Uh, it just it doesn't have very good production value. A lot of the acting feels like you know they got it in one take and moved on. Like it's you know it's just I didn't really care for this movie at all. <laughs> Yeah, 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 you know, and, and I, I was hoping, I was hoping they'd pull it off because I think that the 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 story itself is so simple, and mm-hmm. you know, there's you don't there's not a lot there that you have to you have to embellish. Um, no, the story the story is kind of tells itself. It's it it's 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 a uh, it's a People well, the, the on the story, run and uh, being chased. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it works because we've seen it in all these I- other forms, right? Right. Uh, uh, like you, like you said, it works in Stranger Things. Uh, there was that, um, that like Midnight Special movie or whatever with the psychic kid on the run. There for sure. Uh, Logan. There's, uh-huh. you know, like there's so many examples of this type of story working. Uh, that, that's what I mean. Like, to me, it just feels like this movie was just completely uninspired and, uh, just, it just kind of felt like crapped out. Like, like it was rushed or something. I don't know. There's something about it that feels very televisual. I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it visually, there's, there's no style. You know, I was watching it, the sequence, uh, where the, the two heads of the shop, um, are having a conversation. It couldn't be less interesting to look at. Um, it's just yeah. you know, it's just a scene about exposition anyway. So you know, if there was ever an opportunity to try something a little stylish or a little uh, uh, a little untraditional, I'd rather him hold it in a one shot like a wide than just do this over the shoulder shot reverse shot coverage. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just like basic, it it is just like the most basic, uh, elements of, of, you know, it's like the stuff that you learn in like a 101 film class, right? Right. And it's a lighting, it's like a six minute scene. So it's kind of long. It's all exposition. Um, I guess we're supposed to sort of, uh, become intimidated by this uh, Captain Hollister, who I believe in this version, uh, well, I, well, I know in this version, she was, she's cast as, as a woman in the original. It was a guy, or and I would assume probably the book as well. That's fine. Um, 
I mean, sure, that's fine, but she's not very good. No, <laughs> like, she... no, no offense to her because I I think that nobody's really turning in a good performance here. Um, but they're just everybody is making the least interesting choices possible. Yeah, I actually thought that uh, Ryan Armstrong, um, the little girl, is pretty good for what what she's doing. Sure, yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. She's not uh, the I movie's like doing she... her no favors because it's so boring to look at, and it's just by the numbers, and you're just kind of going with the beats of the story, and you know nothing about it is is uh, holds tension or builds tension. So, oh, unfortunately, I mean, everybody's like, performances just sag on on the uh, the slack of the of the movie. But I do think that she is trying to give an emotional interior performance there. It's just that the movie is like so humdrum that uh, uh, it's you know you have to be looking for it. Yeah, I do agree with you there. Um, I, I think. She is fine, but the movie is just so not interested in doing anything interesting. Um, right. Yeah. And and Zac Efron, I actually, I I don't even think that's like a ne- necessarily a bad casting choice, um, except for well, he's bad in this. Well, Zac Efron good. in I this. Think he, I think he's one of the worst offenders of just feeling like he is just boning it in it just feels so paint by numbers like uh at least uh like sydney lemon uh who plays the mom is emoting right uh he just feels so fucking wooden to me right and unfortunately the you know the strongest emotional arc of the movie should be this father-daughter story you know, you're really oh, yeah, supposed but... to feel him putting himself on the line and like worried sick and, you know, paranoid and, and there's all this like turmoil in the character, but it's all on the page. Like nothing is really coming from neither the camera choices or, or the performance. Uh, but honestly, more so than, than, his emotion or lack thereof, I was so distracted by his weird facelift. It's... Oh, I I don't care about that. I don't know. I guess. Uh, I mean, sure. I, I'm sorry. I don't know. It's... Maybe that's why he couldn't emote. I mean, yeah, his face is like Botoxed into one position now, and he has like this giant lip filler and this like weird jawline that he didn't have, like even back when we did that... That uh, Ted Bundy movie? Uh, I think he just grew a beard. No, he grew a beard to try and cover it up. <laughs> because if <laughs> you can look true, up before and after pictures, and it is shocking. I I don't know. I was just I was just so annoyed by the fact that every time he went to uh, it was called pushing. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they don't really explain it, but like the way. His pupils dilate like you could control. Like it was very strange because they had like these eye condoms later in the movie to protect against him. <laughs> yeah, um, um, no, anyway. I, I totally understood. Like the, the no, concept. no, I that that was all fine. Uh, the point I was getting at was it was very distracting how he would do this cheesy neck crack. 
every time he did it. And it was like, what does cracking your neck have to do with your fucking pupils, bro? Yeah, there's like a a music sting at the same time. Yeah, it it was literally like the director just going, all right, give me something to know that you're using your powers. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure it's something. Uh, what What do you mean? Like, should I crack my neck or something? Sure, that's fine. Whatever. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's something they discussed and, and well, you know what? I have not read the book. Maybe that's in there. You know, so Sure. If maybe that, it if didn't that's the make case sense in the movie. <laughs> if that's the case, then fuck me. But the opening credits is kind of cool. Like there's it's showing him yeah. and the wife being interviewed when they were younger in college, and it's through like kind of grainy, like MK Ultra looking like um uh, security camera kind of stuff while there's like the score going on in the background. And it, it, that part was stylish. I wish the whole movie had lived up to that, that opening. Yep. But, but it also had like a, a super bizarre, weird, boring cold open before that. That it was like that. And that was kind of when I knew I was in trouble with this movie was there's this cold open that, you know, it felt like. I, I've seen epi- cold opens in the X-Files that had yeah. more tension, you know, it's just like so boilerplate. And then, yeah, the the opening credits, I'll, I'll give them a little bit of credit for. Yeah, the opening credits, like whoever was in charge of that um, or put that together, they they had that down that, you know, somebody somewhere had a vision that ended up in just that part of the movie. Uh, but through that grainy footage and with his long hair, he almost kind of looked like a, a, a young a Bradley Cooper. And so for the rest of the movie, it's like, oh, this should have been Bradley Cooper. Like, he would have kicked this, oh, this movie's ass. With his weird uh, beard, I thought they looked like Jared Leto. Oh. Well, I mean, he's yeah, he's he's kind of like the love child of the two. Yeah, so in my <laughs> head, I was just thinking, at least this wasn't Jared Leto. Yeah, I mean, you know, it could always be worse. But yeah, he he's bordering on too young to play this part. But I guess it, it you know, it. I don't know. I don't it think also it, like. I, I also like. I think it was so weird kind of a weird choice to make the movie modern because it it doesn't feel like a modern movie right it feels like it takes place in the 80s right you just it has that vibe that's when you know the source material came out just the idea of a guy and his uh, uh daughter hitchhiking is so bizarre which i get you know they're like living off the grid or whatever but it just feels so out of context anyway that it was really weird when they're like we can't use cell phones and we can't use computers and apparently they were telling people they were Amish and it just it kind of felt like the script was doing all these weird gymnastics to make it modern it was like just set it in the 80s yeah yeah I I don't know I think it I think it kind of worked I I I didn't think that that was a problem in I mean, yes, they had to sort of write out modern technology, and that was the way they decided to do it. And it kind of makes sense for the story. It's like, you know, you can't put yourself on an IP address that you can be tracked in. 
Um, sure, and I don't I, think they I, were I mean, actually I telling people they were Amish. I think that was just something a bully was teasing her about because she said she didn't have a computer. I don't know. I assume, I mean, sure, <laughs> that's a good cover, right? We're Amish. I don't know. It's just, just like, there's even a, a scene where she encounters like these bike bullies. And I, it just felt like, it felt so nonspecific, right? Well, that, everything about the movie is nonspecific. Well, that's exactly my point. I feel like if they had just chosen to make it a period piece, yeah, sure, people would be like, oh, it's just ripping off Stranger Things or whatever. Uh, but A, that's hot right now, so why not? And B, uh, at least it would have been some kind of a choice. Right. I th- the movie's t- uh, very timid to make uh, many or any stylistic choices. Um, I think the... The probably the most insistent stylistic choice is this John Carpenter score, which I assume they hired him to yeah to do it. And as a as compositions of music, they're fine. They're good, even as used in this film. It's so hammy and overused and directing the audience into every emotion they're supposed to be feeling um that it totally that it actually overpowers a lot of the scene work um well i i i think uh, again it it has you know all of the carpenters uh because he recorded it with his son right um it has all of their like you know synth and idiosyncrasies it feels like a john carpenter score which this movie just feels so bland that it it's very jarring. Like they they don't work together. You're visually getting information that that it, it just doesn't work with this score. And and yeah, it telegraphs everything. It it just doesn't feel connected at all. It feels like someone's playing a John Carpenter record while you happen to be watching this movie. Right. Yeah, super on the nose and and very distracting most of the time. And I think, you know, visually the director was trying to go for, I mean, I think it might, it might have just been budget slash laziness, but I think he was trying to play that off as like a Carpenter-esque minimalism. But sure, imagine this movie, had it been directed by uh david robert mitchell who did it follows sure exactly yes give me that Uh, give me anything who was also Uh, going uh, for that same kind of minimalism but actually evoked that in in a way that was and and it was directed with intention this wasn't this just feels very like you know somebody clocking in getting their paycheck and and clocking out like it, it just feels everything about it just feels so bland and boring yeah and you know i think there's there's a couple easy fixes here um even with what they were doing visually that would have helped it at least as a story i think the main issue is that nothing about the shop feels as threatening as it should you know so rainbird is probably probably the most effective thing as far as that goes, just because he's, you know, an assassin, a psychic assassin who just doesn't give a fuck. 
And uh, I believe in the original film, that was um, George C. Scott who played that part. Uh, yeah, which, good for them for at least casting a, a native actor to play a native character. Yeah, yeah. I'll give them credit for that, at least. But I think if the if the, if the movie had had spent more time with with the organization, like, even if we just had, like, a little pre-first act or, like, the first half of the first act about the mother and father's time in the organization, how they escaped and all of that stuff, just so that we can put it in our minds that these people are dangerous and they will, you know, fuck things up. Yeah, it, it felt like they were running away from, like, a college sleep study program. <laughs> I mean, you know, yes, I mean, they're, they're like murking cops and stuff along the way. So, it, the, I don't know, the movie's just not good, the, is, is what it comes down it's to. It's, it, it, they, um, it's just, it, it's very mid, as the uh, the kids say these days. I, I would say it's low. <laughs> uh, and, and you know what? You know how not once we have mentioned uh, the graphics or, or the special effects, which were not great. Uh, but I, I guess I'm, my only point is that I think it's easy to look back on a property like, you know, that came out in the 80s and say, oh, if only they made that today because we have much better special effects. Making it today is no guarantee of quality special effects. It is no guarantee of quality story. Uh, right. Uh, special effects were just as bland as everything else. Yeah, I you know I thought they were serviceable. Um, there was never like a oh shit okay moment. moment. Yeah, there was. Yeah, there's there's some of the violence and stuff like the burn the burn scarring and and some of the practicals are okay. Um, but there's yeah. a cringeworthy scene with a cat. Just that whole scene, that whole sequence of events was just laughably bad. Yeah, it's and and again, it, it maybe could have worked with more subtlety or 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 if it had been shot better, acted better, I don't know, but yeah, and it just kind of <laughs> just kind of happens. Um probably the best sequence of the entire movie like if 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 they had to submit something to somebody as this is the best thing that came out of this outside of the opening credits which we agreed was cool um mm -hmm. as far as actual scene work goes is the scene towards the third act where charlie is in the back seat with the uh with the guy trying to get clearance into the shop. That was probably yeah, that was... the the most tense the movie ever gets. And the most... Uh, uh, Well-performed. Yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but that's not saying a lot, uh, because even that scene ends on kind of a, a little bit of a silly note, I thought. Um, sure. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, I'm giving this movie a D-. minus. Really that low? Um, yeah, I I hated it. I thought it was real bad. I just thought it was bad. Yeah, I would. For me, it's like a C minus D plus. It's not. 
There's an, I don't know. I, I've seen worse. I, I mean, especially if I'm like thinking I, of. I've seen worse. There's just, there's no, there's nothing for, to this movie. There's nothing for it. There's no reason it needs to exist. And it's not creative or artistic enough to justify its own existence. And, right. and when, when you're arguing base level, should this thing exist? That's like bottom of the barrel, you know. The, normally you can say well it's art does any art need to exist or whatever but in this case it's not art it's just boilerplate yeah that's that's the shame about it is they is they put the bare minimum effort in this project and especially with king it's always a bummer when they drop the ball on especially like a remake because you're like god like well, that's, what, that's kind like of this cycle, and though, right the Dark Tower, and when they tried to reboot The Stand, it's like, so now we have to, like, it's probably going to be another ten years before they attempt this again, and, you know. Well, that's exactly my, like, that's just the King cycle. Like, they'll have a big hit with something like It, right? Yeah. And then it's all of a sudden, oh, Stephen King is profitable again. Stephen King is, is box office gold again. So, all we have to do is adapt one of his books... And it, it it just it's such a producer's mindset of like lowest common denominator. Oh, it's Stephen King, therefore it will be successful, and we don't have to do any of the other stuff that you should do to make a good movie. Right. I mean, I mean, I think that um, being a good movie and and uh, effort put into it are not necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, I mean, no, that's true. You take a look at like Dr. Sleep, which I think is one of the best Stephen King adaptations of the last 10, 20 years and kind of an epic of mm -hmm. sorts and does everything that this movie's trying to do a million times better. Um, yeah, but nobody saw that movie and it was a huge box office flop. Uh, yeah, that's true. And I don't think this movie's going to do huge numbers either. I think it's pretty much dead on arrival. But it didn't have to be, and that's what sucks about it, is it's it's all it took is just somebody giving a modicum of a shit, and it could have been yeah. all right. Well, yeah, it, it should have been it should have been better than this. I guess that's my point, and that's why I'm giving it a D mine. Because it's just it it commits the ultimate sin and that's being boring as hell. Yeah. Yeah, I guess when I was thinking about it in terms of like C minus territory, I was grading it on the curve of like the worst Stephen King adaptations, like the <laughs> like, you know, stuff like um the Mangler or whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Maximum That's overdrive. Fair, enough. fair or, enough. On the on the shitty Stephen King curve, uh this is this is pretty mid. Yes, you're right. Yeah, like it's just kind of doing what it says on the tin, but it's not. There's, just, it's just very low effort. Yeah, uh, and you know when it's all said and done, True Barrymore is the better of the two, not by a lot. Like it's kind of whatever too, but it's uh it's probably the more memorable of the two experiences. Sure, but it's also been forever since I've seen that movie, um, <laughs> and it was weird. Uh, Julia Marchesi on Twitter put this, and I responded, 
she was like, does anyone else notice that this and scanners are like remarkably similar and they came out around the same time or maybe even in the same year? Um, and I, I responded like, yes. And I rent, I think I rented them together. And I was like, this is like the same movie. <laughs> it was just a weird coincidence. Uh, yeah. I mean, that, that tracks, uh, all the scanners is a thousand times more interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Um, so that's that. Let's go ahead and start talking about the streaming homework, which you assigned. Uh, this is, speaking of John Carpenter, Ghosts of Mars. Yeah, uh, 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 an unintentional, um, jarring John Carpenter score uh, double feature here. <laughs> yes, for very different reasons. Um, <laughs> yes. So this was released in 2001, and one of his last feature films before he retired um, he made a couple after this, but this was uh, pretty much towards the end of his of his run. And this tells the story of a group of space police who are sent to a colony on Mars to pick up a prisoner. And uh, the prisoner is played by Ice Cube. It goes by Desolation Williams. Desolation Williams. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Natasha uh, Henstridge plays the lead here. She was also in um, Species. Yeah. Uh, but this has a huge cast. Um, there's like a gazillion characters in this movie, and they're all played by somebody of note. Uh, Pam Greer yeah, in this. Yeah, I was, I was kind of surprised when, uh, uh, when Pam Greer turned up. I was like, okay. Yeah, so we got Pam Greer, we got Jason Jason Statham, uh, Clea Duvall, uh, Joanna Cassidy, uh, who people might remember as Zora from um, from Blade Runner. I mean, who else? Uh, Peter Jason, like a gazillion characters show up in this movie. Um, and so basically, they get there, they go to pick up this prisoner, and they find out that something happened in this colony. Um, very aliens like in the plotting, uh, where uh, the uh, miners have been possessed by the ghosts of Martians, <laughs> and they've become like uh, sadistic cannibals, Mars orcs, basically, um, who well, have forged their own weaponry. So, okay. I, I was a little confused by the mythology here, and maybe we'll get into this, but I. It didn't seem like they were possessed by the ghosts of Martians, but it, it seemed like this was like some kind of small biological thing transferred from species to species. That's kind of what I was getting. Oh no, I think these are literally ghosts. I you know okay. they, they talk. You know, there's a flashback sequence at some point where they one of the surviving miners um, talks about them. Uh, opening something they weren't supposed this like uh, tomb or something on Mars, and you see like this bad CGI purple smoke uh, go. Yeah, I thought I figured it was just like uh, uh, again like some kind of like small biological creature. But oh no no no! Because when they 
Part of the board game rules of the... Is it midichlorians? Is it the force? I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> Part of the board game rules is when somebody gets killed, the ghost is released from their body and it can possess somebody in, in nearby. Sure. Which is actually... I still think it was germs, but whatever. Right. I mean, there's it's in question what is actually going on for the first little bit, but I think they make it pretty explicit that, they, that they're possessed by Martian ghosts. Um, I didn't think they were literal ghosts, but but I guess I guess we might need the the listeners to weigh in on this. <laughs> so, uh, a couple things before we get into our likes and dislikes. <laughs> I yeah. had sort of avoided this movie for a long time, and I think you did too when you mentioned that we were going to be talking about it. Um, because I was old enough to remember when this movie came out and the marketing. And I was just like, oh, that does that doesn't look good. Uh, so I didn't see it. And I wasn't like as tuned into the whole John Carpenter thing at that time. So it just looked like a, you know, bad sci-fi movie I wasn't going to go see. And then having seen it, um, I also kind of realized about midway through the movie that this is basically what I proposed as my pitch. For a Lobo film, this is Rio Bravo slash. Hey, yeah, this is Rio Bravo slash Assault on Precinct Thirteen, but in the space colony. Yeah, and honestly, if if you just had instead of Desolation Williams, if if that had just been Lobo, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, you would you'd probably like minimize the uh, the captain character as being less the main character, but. But yeah, I mean, that was basically my idea. It was like some sort of space prison where they have to transfer a, a, a transfer Lobo and then they get attacked by space pirates or space bandits or whatever. Um, yeah, in this case, it's possessed space cannibals. Right. And honestly, that those kind of details, it doesn't really matter. Another thought that came to mind while watching this was, was when they were describing these these you know, this cult cannibal uh, sadomasochists. Um, I was like, oh, this is, they're basically the Reavers from Firefly. Yeah, from uh, Serenity, yeah. It, yeah. it also kind of reminded me of uh, that Neil Marshall movie Doomsday. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, but, but I mean. More so in style than in story, but. Yeah. Well, and you know, clearly Neil Neil Marshall owes a lot to John Carpenter, right? And uh, just that kind of cinema in general, kind of pulp cinema, uh, is yeah. Is, and this is pulp cinema, <laughs> right? Um, and 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 I'm glad that I saw it when I did because I think if I had seen it, um, when the movie came out and I was like, I don't know, fourteen, fifteen years old. I would have just said that was a bunch of weird bullshit. But <laughs> now at my age and having, you know, seen the movies I've seen and like having a bit more of a uh, a palette for pulp and camp and and, and uh this and- yeah, space cheese and that kind of stuff and I was like this is some crazy bullshit and I am here for it. <laughs> I was it's kind of a lot of fun. I was having such a good time. I was dreading putting the movie on when we when I started it, 
And I was like, I'm probably going to watch like half of this and then finish it tomorrow. And then I was just having so much fun the whole way through. I was like, this movie is dumb as hell and I love it. <laughs> but I think this okay. is an underrated is, gem. Is, no, here's the, you were absolutely right. It is dumb as hell. But it absolutely commits to it and owns its dumbness. It is like right. it treats the dumbness like it's the most serious situation ever. And I do think there's enough of a framing story there with the whole, uh, uh, like you said, Rio Bravo in space, right? It does have yeah. this very like westerny vibe sure. that, that I think allows you to sort of soak the cheese in at at the pace that's appropriate it's not just uh it's not just an assault on your senses bad you know what i mean right the and way it, that like space jam is right yes and and i think that it um it, it's playing within a tradition it's not like this isn't coming from anything i mean obviously there's stuff you know if you want to like look at something like this at its at its like highest art you you're talking about something like Dune, right? Um, and if you want to look at something like this at it, and its most populist and uh, low art form, um, this is kind of like a heavy metal magazine kind of story. Totally, yes. Uh, and I think if you watch exactly. it with that uh, in mind and those kind of expectations, I don't know why people don't like this movie a little bit more. Like, I think it still kind of has a bad reputation. Okay, so I think it's a couple things. Uh, this was certainly when John Carpenter's career was waning. It was winding, I, I honestly winding down, the, yeah. The, the, yeah, he'd had a couple... I mean, he'd had a few, like, like pulpy misses. Um, like, you know, Escape from L.A. is not a good movie. It's it's similar levels of cheese as this. But I um, feel like that one has found its audience now. People talk about that movie well, like it's actually good. Sure. Uh, 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 there's also, like, his Vampires movies, which, you know, similarly kind of found their audience, I think, a little bit later. Yeah. I think the biggest problem this one had was that it came out Two years too late. It came out in 2001. It came out post-Matrix. It came out... Yeah. It came out once the action genre had changed forever. And if this had come out in 1998, I think we would be having a very different conversation about it. You're probably right about that. However, one of the notes that I had while watching is it came out in 2002. It looks like it came out in 1992. Because yeah, it's for sure very under budget for what it's going for, uh, mm -hmm. and I you know you can definitely tell the whole thing is just on a soundstage. The decapitation sequences alone, and there are many, yes, uh, are the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> There's a like yeah. a, a major characters will get decapitated by these flying discs, and it is so jarring and bad looking, but hilarious and fun at the same time. Yeah, there's also this uh, there's this fight that's being watched through like the scope of a pistol um, between <laughs> I want to say it's the uh, Jason Statham character fighting one of the uh, one of the ghouls, 
and uh-huh. it's such bad fight choreography. I don't even think they're making oh actual God. contact with also, each other. I d- this movie might have been the movie that forever retired the roundhouse kick guy does a full 360 spin and falls on the ground move. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I think there was a few others after this, but no, I mean, I'm not going yeah. I'm not going to come out here and tell people this is a good movie. It's not. But if you watch it with the right frame of mind, this movie is a blast. It's it's the exact opposite of what we just saw with Firestarter, which is bad and uninspired and bland. This is totally just going for it, owning it, being as batshit crazy as it can be, and, you know, doing all these, like, low-budget filmmaking tricks to try and hide uh you know like you said the fact that it's 12 people on a sound stage uh but having an absolute blast with it like it it like you said it, it's coming from this tradition of pulp sci-fi yeah that is just so much fun to watch because it's like it's cheesy but it's also like primal and i mean the main villain Sounds like a South Park character. It's like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. Yeah, I loved it so much. Uh, um, I lo- I loved all of them. Um, and one of the things that's like I mentioned that it has this huge cast of character actors, and they keep introducing people. Like every scene, it's like here's three more characters. You're like, Jesus Christ! <laughs> but. Uh, um, but the, I mean, the best were Uno, Dos, and Trace. Oh, yeah. Obviously. <laughs> they don't even get names. Yeah. No, they were... Well, and that's another thing that's kind of going on in this movie is... is uh, well, first of all, I just want to compliment that the movie is paced well enough and that it, uh, it actually... I never got to the point where it just felt like there's four real characters and a bunch of red shirts... Like I was like, oh, I sure, like yeah. I'm in this. Like this is an ensemble piece. Like I I kind of care what happens to all of these characters, even though like they're either totally repellent as people or <laughs> just uh, uh, exposition deliveries. Um, but they do a really good job at shoving this clunky exposition in the mouths of these actors who are just spitting it with so much attitude. Oh my um, god, Ice Cube is the MVP of this movie. Well, I was initially worried about Ice Cube because he's first of all he's kind of short. He's like like a lot of the, a lot of the uh women characters are taller than him in the movie. <laughs> um well, that's okay because this is a matriarchal society. <laughs> right, yeah. Exactly. They point out for basically no reason. Right. Um, again, that's a heavy metal magazine thing uh, kind of totally, happening. Yeah. Uh, also sort of reminded me of, um, uh, what was that movie? Death Comes to Frogville or whatever. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, Hell Comes to Frogtown. Yes. Um, I, think I was there's... getting those vibes for sure. Yeah. And th- these two movies definitely belong in those in the same section of that video store. Um, the one thing I, I will say. Uh, uh, in regards to that, oh, is this movie in comparison to to that genre? Yeah, does feel a little chaste. Yeah, like there there's 
a scene where Jason Statham and, and um, Natasha Henstridge almost hook up, but it's like, you know, I will say generally uh, this genre is much hornier. This this definitely should have been hornier to like totally like tap into that thing. They're def they're and like half of the characters are lesbians, but this was also yeah. two thousand one, so they couldn't. They could only do what they could get away with, probably. And they probably, I mean, as far as we know, there probably could have been like four or five sex scenes or booby shots that the that got cut out of the movie because it was already sure. too I mean, I violent. Was, I was there was an allusion to uh, Pam Greer and Natasha Henstridge hooking up, and I was like, let's let that happen. Yeah, I mean, if it'd been made today, maybe it would. I don't know, but no, uh, if it had been made in uh, 1987, it definitely would have. Nowadays, no. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, but uh, going back to the Ice Cube thing, I came around to yeah. him. When uh, he's first released and we see him like put on the uh, black shaft jacket, <laughs> the like leather yeah. jacket, and he's dressed exactly like shaft. And then it's like Pam With Greer is in there. And then you have Uzis. Yes. <laughs> you, you have Pam Greer. You have Unos Dos Trace. I was like, there's like kind of a black exploitation thing happening in this movie also so like the whole movie well, just sure. kind of feels I mean, like they, uh they into that with you know the main character being a cop and he's a robber and like they yeah. joke around about that and ice cube delivers his line with all the social conviction that you want ice cube to have uh that it totally feels like that yeah, I mean, I, I think that the movie as a whole is sort of a love letter to exploitation cinema. Um, and again, I, I'm, I'm here for it. I am a fan of Ghosts of Mars. Who would have thought? Same. I was, I was surprised how fun this stupid little movie is. Yeah. Like, I, this is totally a get drunk with your friends and watch kind of movie. Although I was enjoying it sober and alone, oh, which is also the name of my uh, autobiography. That's actually your other podcast. Yeah, sober and alone. It's it's not as fun as this one. Um, <laughs> but yes, uh, I recommend if if you uh, if you if you have your tastes and expectations tuned into what it is, uh, I think this movie's fun. There's a there's a fight scene on the train where she's doing kung fu against a guy who looks like he fell out of a, a spirit Halloween. It's great. Oh yeah, and what's the name of the train? Like the the marinara or something? I can't remember. Also, the train that like didn't show up for no reason, and oh. then then they're like. Where the hell have you been? Where the hell were you guys? What? <laughs> right. You're on a track. You go one way. <laughs> <laughs> so silly i would say this is a great double feature also with uh riddick not um yeah not pitch black not chronicles of riddick but the movie riddick which also kind of lives in the same sort of pulp universe um oh, have you seen that that i almost assigned that to you recently oh yeah i saw that back when it was in theater uh, uh, that's the only uh, Chronicle of Riddick I have seen, have not seen. I think you would enjoy it based upon your feelings on this movie. Um, it is definitely the 
pulpiest and uh, Frank Fajetta e of of those movies. All right, love it. All right, and that is the streaming homework. Next week for the streaming homework, we're going to be heading into Pride Month, and I wanted to bring up at least a couple uh, notable. LGBT films, and I know that you had never seen uh, Tangerine, which is on Netflix right now. Uh, yeah. Uh, have not seen it. Looking forward to it. Yes, we'll talk about that, and if anybody has anything to uh, add to the discussion of the films that we talked about in this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com can also contact us. Most importantly, us. you need to watch Ghosts of Mars and weigh in on the are they literal spirits or are they some kind of biological creature? I think they made it pretty explicit, but okay. Yes, uh, you can also contact us on our social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at MacGuffinPod. Uh, you can uh, follow me on Instagram at VCCassidy. Oh, I forgot to mention it uh, when we were talking about Firestarter. Um, I did is now that I don't have Twitter, I have to get my thoughts out other ways. So I, I posted mm-hmm. an Instagram story, and I uh, I mentioned that I couldn't believe that a movie made in 2022 uh, called Firestarter did not use the song Firestarter by Prodigy <laughs> at some point. No, that would have been a choice. Yeah, that would have been like something like commitment. <laughs> but I mean, it's all set up. Like the scene when she's breaking into the to the the shop. Like, yeah, drop the beat right there. Sure. Uh, but yes, yeah, so if you want to see anything like that, you can follow me on Instagram at, at VC Cassidy, uh, and you can also read the reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal by googling Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment. That'll take you to the page where they put reviews and uh, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and a one sentence review on whatever podcast app that you use iTunes, uh, Spotify, Stitcher radio player.fm. They all have a, a rating section or good pod. If you use that, you know, I don't, I, I download it. I don't really understand it, but if you happen to use good pods, uh, leave us a review or share us or do whatever you're supposed to do with that app. And uh, be sure to read the other articles and reviews by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Keith Foster Kid, And you can also follow my art account on Instagram at Sticky Note Aesthetic. Okay, and that is the end of the episode. Bye.